Coming up on this week's show, was blowing into your game cartridges a waste of time? An incredible new Tomb Raider fan game. And we go inside Maxis and the Sim Games with Justin McCormick. The Retro Owl podcast is brought to you each week with our amazing friends at Bitmap Books. Now, if you get a minute, have a look on their website at bitmapbooks.co.uk and check out their visual compendiums, covering systems like the NES, the ZX Spectrum, the Master System, and their new book dedicated to Game Boy box art. You can check them out right now and, of course, help out the show by going to bitmapbooks.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 263, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And welcome to the show where each week we reminisce about classic video games, find out the stories behind them, and also explore kind of what's happening in the world of retro gaming today with a healthy dose of nostalgia sprinkled on for good luck. You know, I, apparently, uh, nostalgia is a disease. <laughs> well, that's I'm what a the disease. Ancient Greeks said. Yeah. I'm a disease then because that's why I do the show and I'm addicted to nostalgia. Proud to be diseased. There's a new t shirt we can get made. <laughs> <laughs> but today, we are going to be finding out the story of, by far, one of the most infamous video game series of all time, going inside Maxis and getting some stories about the Sim games. Yeah, the Sim games were huge. Like, Maxis was a wicked company and it was on so many different systems and you know we're going to be talking with Justin McCormick and Justin was there from the very start so he worked with Will Wright and Will Wright is you know the main man behind Maxis really and he's kind of running the Sim series at the moment but there's tons of titles like Sim City, uh, Sim Ant, Sim Life as well which were absolutely fantastic and of course Sim City 2000 which uh I, I don't know about you guys, but when SimCity 2000 hit, I was addicted to that title. Yeah, man, I love the Sim games. I had to jump on this one and talk to him about it as well. And it was a good laugh as well. Like, you know, he was talking about the Sims and then we brought him back to talk about Simant because we had some funny questions about the spiders with the laser eyes and stuff like that. So <laughs> it was a really cool, chilled interview. Um, and <laughs> he had a really good voice as well. You know, one of those really relaxing voices. Uh, Dan said, you know, he listened back to it and edited it. You know, you could have fallen asleep to it. It was that relaxing. Oh, beautiful <laughs> bass. And I, I think I had to add about like um, 10 decibels of treble onto his voice proper <laughs> gravelly great voice you're going to enjoy this one Justin McCormick is coming up very soon on the Retro Hour podcast I mean he worked with Will Wright like you said and also I love the fact you talked about some of the more obscure sim games as well like Sim Mars I don't remember that game Sim Raccoon <laughs> there, were, there was Sim everything wasn't there you yeah. know like uh, yeah um, Sim Mars he mentions but um, stuff like Sim Ant as well which which was kind of a crazy game you know a lot yeah. of these were, were were kind of a bit crossovers with edutainment and stuff and like even you know sim city seemed a bit like a business type of game well you do mention in this interview and obviously you'll, you'll hear more more about it with justin very soon but how um city planners actually mm. asked maxis to give them advice on you know planning for emergencies and that kind of thing yeah and of course the disasters as well so that was one thing i loved about the game you know when you get bored you can just have earthquakes. Um, you can have, you know, huge Godzillas attacking your cities and stuff. So there was always an element of fun in there as well. Although that did get them into trouble, as we hear about. I was going to say, I didn't want to give it away as a spoiler, <laughs> but I did love that little story about how that got into trouble as well. 
So uh, you're going to enjoy this one. Justin McCormick, stories about Maxis and the Sims games coming up very soon on the Retro Hour podcast. And of course, we have lots of retro gaming news stories that have been making the headlines this week. Let's jump straight into it with actually a story that bizarrely first surfaced about seven years ago. <laughs> but I've actually been seeing this all over my timeline again this week. And uh, loads of websites, including Tech Times, Gizmondo, have uh, picked up on this and actually done articles about it in the last week that apparently blowing onto your game cartridges didn't actually do anything. Now, I was looking at our listener stats, and we do actually have quite a healthy audience who are aged between about 18 to 24, who might not remember, you know, playing like NES and Super Nintendo games. Why did we blow on game cartridges, Joe? Um, so, yeah, <laughs> I feel like I'm telling people to suck eggs here, but like, like you say, we have recently had a few younger listeners, so... Yeah, we used to blow on cartridges, not, ju- not just now, but back in the day, we used to blow on them because of about half the time, 50% of the time, you would stick it in the Mega Drive or the SNES or Nintendo or whatever, and it wouldn't work on the first time. You would just get the black screen and the game wouldn't load. So you'd pull the cartridge out, blow into the bottom of it as if you were blowing away the dust, even though you'd only played that game the day before, and then it would it would magically work. And it, it always worked. It worked every single time, didn't it, when you did that? You know, Game Boy games, Game Boy Advance... Nintendo snares, anything like that. But yeah, this article, which is coming up again, um, is obviously saying that it didn't actually work. It's been proven it didn't work. And what I found really interesting about this is I've seen loads of memes in the past about this saying like, oh, it even says it on the cartridge label, don't actually blow into them. You know, on the back of like SNES cartridges, it's got like... Printed on the back of it. Printed on the back, it says the instructions of it. And I was like, when you sent this article earlier, and I was like, yeah, it is printed on it. So I went into my cupboard to get some of my unboxed games out. And I looked at my Nintendo, my SNES, my N64 and my Mega Drive games and it's not on there. It it isn't actually on there saying do not blow on them. It just says don't put like alcohol on them and stuff. There's a Mandela effect. There is. There you go. And (laughs) and I thought I could have sworn it said on them don't blow on them and I could have sworn I've seen pictures of it saying don't blow on them. But yeah, apparently uh, if anything, it's actually bad for them. It's like one of those urban legends like, Mm. uh, you know, shaking a a Polaroid picture. yeah, Did it, didn't actually have any effect on it developing. Well, you're, you're blowing my mind there now. <laughs> <laughs> and, and like, I, I've seen this because I've seen a lot of people restoring carts and doing stuff online. And apparently, I, I, I don't know if I'm going to damage your carts telling you about this, but apparently using a rubber on the actual cart is a, is a good way of cleaning it. Um, he's, taking he's, it out, getting a PCB or contact, contact cleaner. I hear is good. You see, interesting because it does actually say on them, don't use em- uh, chemicals or alcohol on the contacts and don't touch the contacts. But like you say, everybody always touches the contacts, you know, tries to clean them themselves. And you can even get like little alcohol rubbing cards, that, you know, to clean them with as well, which really help them. But apparently the reason it made it worse was apparently when you blew in them, you got spit particles onto the contacts. And it could actually damage them, apparently, or make them rusty. It's like sucking your car. Yeah. (laughs) But apparently the reason it tended to work on the second try was because after you tried it the first time and it didn't work, taking the act of putting the cartridge in and taking it out and then putting it in again, that was actually what was cleaning the cartridge or something, apparently, to make it work. I'm not 100% about that, but apparently that's why it would work after you blew on it. It wasn't the fact that you blew it, it was just the fact that you took it out and put it in again. Yeah, I used to blow in everything. I, yeah, same. I still do. Yeah. I still do, my, even though my, I know that. Like I've heard all this. My floppy drives, my mini disc player. <laughs> <laughs> Got to get in there. 
I don't know if you guys are the same as me, though, but I've got so many memories. You know, recent memories, actually, you know, playing my Jaguar, that kind of thing, you know, putting games in, them not working, pulling it out a bit, putting it back in, not working, trying it five or six times, then blowing it and pushing it in, it worked. Yeah, and That's on the, loads of times. The amount of times I've blown in it and it doesn't work, and then I get out and I blow it in, I full on, like, can I blow it, get the dust out, do you know what I mean? And then it works. So, yeah, apparently it's all, it's all an urban myth, urban legend. See, I always wondered if when you blew in it, you know, that kind of the condensation in your breath, which, you know, you mentioned then is actually bad for it, mm. but if that kind of helped the connectivity somehow, because I mean, yeah. obviously moisture is, you know, water is a con- conductor, isn't it? Yeah. Maybe there's something in it there. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting though. What I actually found mind blowing about this article that I'll put in our show notes on Tech Times is that there is still a support page for the NES original console and the game packs on Nintendo's website. I thought you were going to say like a Nintendo hotline to ring still. <laughs> There's like one guy Are working there. Are problems Nintendo? with your cart? There's one guy working there still. <laughs> like, yeah, there you got, you got a blow in it, mate. <laughs> but an online article makes more sense. It's cool that Nintendo's actually got something about the original NES and, you know, support for it on their website today. I think that's pretty cool. But um, there you go. Apparently, we've been wasting our time blowing into our game cartridges for the last, what, 30, 40 years. Um, Speaking of 30 years, actually, there has been a big celebration. I heard loads of people talking about this over the weekend. Lemmings turned 30. I believe it was on Sunday, the 30th anniversary of it. Yeah, and uh, I've actually been writing an article for Amiga Addict about Lemmings. So I've interviewed them recently and, you know, it's an absolutely amazing title, like uh, so revolutionary when it came out. And it and it started with the guys basically in a youth club um, doing images of like killing little pixels and kind of just having that idea and then grew to, to I think it was over 32 systems it was ported to. It was like Lemmings was like the doom of back in the days, you know, it would run on every single system and uh i think they're still porting it there's a there's a new port coming for the spectrum next isn't there i've got lemmings on um i found it on the playstation 2 um didn't realize it ever came out on the ps2 but actually it's a really good version on there well they got is it a 3d version or does it look like the original yeah like the original but with like you know souped up graphics and music that that, i know you mentioned the 3d version because that was the changing point wasn't it when Mm. lemmings kind of started to do a bit of a a downhill move um but you know i i remember lemmings too uh oh no more lemmings christmas lemmings uh there were some wicked titles and also it was like a game that appealed to everyone i remember like, you know, grandma's playing Lemmings and, and kids at the same time, everyone enjoying it. And also, it was really weird because, you know, your parents would come in the room when you're playing it and they'd actually recognise some of the tunes that they used on it. To me, we've actually done entire shows about Lemmings before. I think, you know, in our early days, I think we, we had Mike Daly on one of our, I want to say it was in the first 10 episodes we ever did, um, talking about Lemmings. And we had Tim Wright on who did, you know, the music for Lemmings as well. And he talks about the fact that they used a lot of those old copyright-free nursery rhymes, essentially, in the game, which at the time was just to get around having to license music. But actually, it gave it a really unique feel, I think, didn't it? And, you know, like, DMA designs are still on top. You know, they they, they turned into Rockstar North, and, uh, you know, they've been very successful. But also there was that whole set of uh, Lemming stamps and, well, classic video game stamps that included the Lemmings one that came out last year. 
Yeah, and I love the fact this has actually been making headlines. You know, the Metro Evening Telegraph have been covering it as well. Um, you know, showing pictures of the, uh, the the lemming statues. You know, there is actually statues in Dundee if you go there, because <laughs> you know it, it is obviously an icon of British gaming. Um, I think you're right in terms of the 3D games. They were a bit hit and miss. I tried playing 3D Lemmings on the PlayStation One about a year ago, and I know some people love that game. I just couldn't get my head around it. I only ever played the demo of Lemmings 3D, and I, I enjoyed Lemmings. It wasn't like I had it for the Mega Drive. I wouldn't say it was my favourite game, but it was a game I always went back to. And I remember playing the demo on PS1, and I just I couldn't get into it at all. I couldn't, you know, and it, it kind of reminds me of like these bad games, bad 3D games, which came out before my O64. I always kind of think, labeled as one of them. I always think Lemmings should be pixeled, and mm. like Lemmings 2 for me was it's one of my favourite titles. You know, because they, they, they define the Lemmings. They had different tribes for everybody and they all had different identities. Is Lemmings 2 the one which is just, it's called Lemmings the Tribes or something? Yeah, the Tribes, yeah, yeah. 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 And, and you know, that, that was really funny because they've always had good humour with it as well. Like mm. like DMA, even even up to now with Rockstar North, they've still got tons of humour in the game. I don't think they've released a proper serious title for years. It's always, always been a laugh, hasn't it? Because I remember when I got my... Amiga 500 for Christmas I got the Cartoon Classics pack and that came with um, Bart versus the Space Mutants Bart Simpson mm-hmm. game um, there was Captain Planet in there as well yeah. really cheesy Saturday morning TV show I played both of those games you know all day long and Lemmings I loaded it up and you know I hadn't really used a mouse all that much before then I mean we're talking like god like 91 I got it and I remember loading up Lemmings and like just trying to figure out what was going on and was like oh this is complicated went back to playing Bart Simpson instead for a bit and then about a week later, one of my friends from school came over on the afternoon and he showed me how to play it. And after that, I was completely hooked. And even to this day, I mean, you know, last time I went up home, my brother said, you know, oh, bring an Amiga up with you. And I brought my A600 up a couple of summers ago. And we sat there till about four in the morning, <laughs> got through a bottle of Jack Daniels, just playing Lemmings all night. Stuck on the first <laughs> level. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't want to admit it, Joe, but yeah, you might be right. <laughs> have you, have um, you done two-player Lemmings? Yeah, we, yeah. yeah, we did that as well. You play, you play with two mice and you've got to kind of compete with each other. And I think even if you, you know, even in one player mode, I think having two people in front of the screen, helping each other problem solve, it is still a really engaging game. Mm, absolutely. I remember meeting uh, one of our friends, Alkis, came around and uh, we were playing Lemmings and there's this little fan in it and, and, and you can move the Lemmings and blow them with it. And he was like, I've not known that you could do that for like, 10 or 20 years, you know, I never knew what the function of that was until you showed me. It was one of those kind of games, wasn't it? You just uh, worked around the problems, you know. Yeah, still great. Still a fantastic game. Still so much fun and still as frustrating as ever. When you make a little mistake and that's it, you're going to start the whole level again. But um, yeah, a legendary series. So happy 30th birthday, Lemmings. Um, Many happy returns. Hopefully we'll get some new Lemmings of games at some point. That's a series that needs to come back proper, I think. Totally. When I DJ, I drop so many Lemming sound effects into my sets now. <laughs> it's just like... <laughs> <laughs> oh, no! Well, something else that looks really impressive. Now, um, this is a fan who was a, a massive fan of Tomb Raider 2. And incredibly, he's done a stunning fan-made remake of Tomb Raider 2. Now, this was jaw-dropping when I first played this video. I think you said, Joe, it looks like a AAA game. Yeah, so this has come from a guy called Nico Base, um, who's been working on it for about four or five years. He started it in 2016. I was watching the video earlier on, so there's a 40-minute video um, uploaded onto a 
YouTube channel by Gabriel Oliveira, um, just playing the game, kind of, you know, going through it, casually playing it. And if you just stumbled across this and didn't read into it, you would just assume it's a new Tomb Raider game coming out because it looks amazing. Um, I think the graphics in it are absolutely superb. The sound design in it is amazing. It's only, I think, about the first two or three levels. I think maybe, or is it just the first level so far? Um, yeah, there's a few different levels in there, I think, yeah. but it's not the complete game yet. It's not the complete game. Um, yeah. it, it looks really, really gorgeous. Um, I think the graphics and like the lighting effects in it and stuff look absolutely amazing. I was a little bit like, I was trying to, I was racking my brain. I was like, who's even got the, you know, the Tomb Raider IP at the moment? But it's Square, isn't it? Square Enix have it. So I was a little bit like, okay, like, you know, at least it's not Nintendo and no season desists come across, you know, like come out so far. But I, I would definitely pick this up. I've only played the first Tomb Raider of the new kind of, there's three of them, isn't there, of the new ones. But Ravi, you said you didn't like it, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm I'm obsessed with uh, Tomb Raider. And yeah. Like, I've, I've played the new ones and they are absolutely awesome and I'm really used to them now. Uh, mm. This looks good. Like, I like... I like the idea and the concept, but like all of the stuff in here is pretty much in the new ones. Like the shading effects of it, the caves look exactly the kind of same. And I think the rendering on Lara needs to be a bit better, but, but it's a, it's an honorable project. And like, mm. you know, also I wasn't that much of a fan of Tomb Raider too. God, I'm going to get <laughs> slated now, but um, <laughs> like, I, I think it's awesome. Yeah, definitely. And you know, people who are huge fans of that game, really really enjoy this i just hope it doesn't get taken down because uh, uh you know it, does he have the rights that's that's the question he, he you know? definitely doesn't have the rights let's be honest <laughs> but but i think the fact that you even compared a one-man project to a game that probably had four or five hundred people yeah. working on it proves how good quality this is yeah totally yeah. and like i guess it's because i've seen a lot of these remakes done in the unreal engine that it seems very unreal engine to me <laughs> No, but this is one man. This is this is pretty insane. And like you know, he's got all the sections in there. He's got uh, the, the the butler, and uh, you know. Well, we haven't seen that yet. I mean, Croft Manor's not in this video. There's, no, there's but some in, screenshots. In, there's some screen the, in the right, video. Okay. There's there's like um, a gallery where you can view the characters and like you know like a lot of the Resident Evil games do it and stuff where you like unlock visual compendiums. And he's got the butler in there, at the, right? Okay, as, as well. And he does look good, doesn't it, Ravi? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, tombraider-docs.com uh, to download your demo version whilst you can. <laughs> yeah, before it's gone. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, a lot of people are saying, I mean, looking through the, the comments on the YouTube video here, and, you know, there's quite an interesting comment that's near the top. Um, one guy says here, he thinks the most incredible part about this is that it's an old school video game using modern technology. He said it still feels like a video game. They reckon that, you know, many big companies today, they try and go for realism and make games really epic and try to push the technology. And it's all about, you know, making it like a movie almost. But this kind of goes a bit more back to roots and feels like a game, you know, without kind of trying too hard. Yeah, like. I, I see what you're saying. I mean, I, I know I talk about Resident Evil all the time, but a friend of my friend of mine, played through Resident Evil 3 literally this week. It took him like four hours to complete in one evening and he, he bought it for like 15 quid because it's been out a year now. And he was like, not bad for a four... He was like, it's literally like a four-hour movie. Like, it kept me entertained for the evening. And he literally described it as a movie. Like, that's literally what he described it as. I mean, there is a lot of gameplay to it. It's not like a press A now to kill the boss kind of thing. It, you know, it is an actual... But it's so cinematic. I, I see where people are coming from, if that makes sense. 
and, and, and the same here. You can you can make a game enjoyable and you know make it fun without really feeling like you've got to live up to that expectation and overcomplicating things. He's saying. Well, I was watching this you know this this gameplay footage of the Tomb Raider two remake here. And I was thinking as I was watching it, like I was thinking I, I would pay it. I'd buy this game. I'd buy this game. But I was also thinking to myself, I'd probably be really bad at this because of games like this these days hold your hands so much. Like, oh, yeah. you need to climb over here up these rocks. Well, they're going to glow slightly white for you. Like the Last of Us games do that as well. Like, you know, I've recently played through The Last of Us 2 and stuff. Whereas Tomb Raider, the old Tomb Raider games didn't do that. And this didn't do it for you. And I was just like, that probably be an issue for me because I was never good at Tomb Raider. Yeah, it's no, it's, it's definitely more puzzle based Tomb Raider too. Yeah, like like the new ones have got like crafting sections in there and all these boring kind of things that Lara really didn't do before. Whereas you just want to be in a tomb working out a puzzle and kind of uh, just playing it at, at that kind of pace with like dramatic sections in the middle of it, you know. So I think it's it's definitely got an appeal because that's like that's like part of Tomb Raider that's been lost. And the fact that so much of this has already been done, you'd think, you know, if, if you were Square, for example, because I mean, I was reading the other day about Nintendo being up to their old tricks again. I think they took down something like 270 fan-made games Jesus. in the last month, and they've been doing copyright strikes on YouTube videos and all that again. Who's done that? Nintendo. Um, Nintendo, yeah, yeah. I think it was like a whole website with, that took the whole thing down last oh, month. Gosh. Um, but then you, you think of you as Square and you look at this, someone who's that dedicated to Tomb Raider, loves it that much. He spent like, you know, half a decade of his life working on this. I hope they'll look at it like Sega did, the team who obviously they got to do um, Sonic Mania in the end, Christian mm. Whitehead and that crew. Look at this and think, well, this is incredible. Why don't we work with this guy, get this out as a proper release and maybe do Tomb Raider 1 and 3 as well with him. You know, that'd be awesome. Yeah, that would be really cool, like uh, like they did with Crash Bandicoot and Spyro or something yeah. like that. I like you Tomb say, Raider one, I I I, I would go mad for. <laughs> yeah, that would be cool. But and like like you say, it's I hate to say, it, but it's an easy easy cash grab for them as well. Especially if half the work's been done. Do you know what I mean? They don't have to invest that much into it. But we'll see, won't we? So I really hope that happens. I mean, right now you can download what's done of the game so far for free. And uh, played on your PC. Obviously, I'll put a link in our show notes. Fingers crossed it's still going to be there by the time you listen to the show. But yeah, incredible. I mean, it just blows my mind how good fan games are getting these days. Now, a system that's really caught your attention this week, Ravi, um, is the Ready Model 100. Now, we've talked about similar things to this before. Uh, projects that kind of turn the Raspberry Pi into a badass kind of old school terminal looking PC. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know what this is attempting to be. It looks crazy. It it's kind of it looks a bit like a ghetto blaster because it's got these um uh, like sidearm carry kind of things, but then it's got these two giant aerials and it also looks a bit like a lighting control board or 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 something really random. It's it's called the Ready Model 100. And you know, to me, it looks like a bit of medical equipment. Medical equipment, yeah. I'm going to hook this up and scan you or something like Yeah. Um, it's designed for the Raspberry Pi, but it's also designed for um, any single board use computer. So you could put your um, FPGA uh, mister in here, or you could put the clockwork boards in. Uh, any type, really. Um, it's got a, a Pico ITX. A form factor as well so you can have little power supplies in there space for an ssd um it's got a little speaker in there um ethernet wireless connectors and it, it looks like a fun 
little kind of project. Um, the display on it, you can have outputs going through there. So like they were saying, you know, this could be used for audio equipment. So you could hook this up, turn it into a synthesizer and have all the stuff displayed or like a oscilloscopy style display or output. But then you could also add all your own modules internally. So it, it, it looks like a really cool device. What do you think, guys? To me, it actually reminds me a bit of the the BBC Micro in a way kind of the look of it, and you've got the mechanical keyboard as well, which looks beautiful. But obviously, if you picture the BBC Micro and kind of along the top of it, you know, where when you were a kid, you probably rested your glass of water. Um, now you've got like this very wide screen that goes all the way along, and obviously you can display things there with two stereo speakers <laughs> either side of it. I love the fact it's got stereo speakers on this unit as well. Yeah, you know, you'll be able to blast stuff and you could you could retro game on it and uh, take it around someone's house with all the additional add-ons, not have all the USB sticking out and everything. And it's £170, pounds, um, uh, Great British. Uh, I don't know what that would be with import and all of this kind of stuff. Mm. But um, I think that sounds like an all right price for a kind of custom case that gives you all of these options. Yeah, I mean, some people are saying, oh, why don't you just get a laptop or something? But I mean, for that price and you get, you know, something like a Raspberry Pi, you've got a pretty powerful little portable computer system that you can take around that looks incredible. I mean, there's actually an image in here um, on this article on cnxsoftware.com where a guy's actually put like a shoulder strap around it. Yeah, like like a, like a guitar. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's really cool little piece of kit, actually. Do you remember that scene at the end of Revenge of the Nerds where they're on stage and he's got like, the synthesizer around him? I can just imagine you playing that or something. This awesome. is a proper Revenge of the Nerds piece of kit, isn't it? I'm going to get Ravi in the band and stand on stage with it. <laughs> yeah, so um, I just love seeing projects like this. I mean, you know, the more ingenuity we can see with our retro systems and uh, making unusual things, the better. Keep them coming. Now, actually, speaking of weird things, we've noticed this weird trend that seems to be going on right now in retro portables. Now, I think this started with the the Game Gear Mini that, Nintendo, um, that Sega brought out last year uh, that had that one-inch screen on there. And I remember at the time when that was announced, we were all a bit like, oh, okay, um, how are you going to play that then? Like with a magnifying glass or something? But now it seems to have started a bit of a trend. A lot of these mini handheld consoles are coming out with one-inch screens. This this reminds me of like do you remember like mobile phones in the early two thousands when it was like the whole joke of them becoming smaller and smaller and there's even like a joke in Futurama where one of them answers their mobile phone and it's like literally like a centimeter big kind of thing. Obviously we went the other way with mobiles in the end, but it just it honestly this it just seems a bit silly now. Like Ravi sent over a link for like you know three different ones that should have been announced this week alone. You know all these different ones, but one of them. I forget the name of it. Is it the, the, the boy clone, the nano boy clone is literally like a centimeter big, the whole console. And the screen is like only a few, like it's like half a centimeter wide or something, but it's got like a mad amount of pixels on it. Like it's smaller than a 10 P coin um, with a, yeah, with a 2048 pixel uh, OLED display, um, which is half an inch. Yeah. 0.49 inch screen. This it's just, is uh, it's just silly, man. <laughs> this this is where my inappropriate joke comes in, and you know this this would be really good for retro gaming in prison. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought your joke was going to be worse, Ravi. To be fair, <laughs> honestly, like 
they're cool. They're cool little gifts, but they're never that cheap either. <laughs> like, mm. Do you think they've had a sale on like Tamagotchis or like you know, the screens? <laughs> These mini screens, the, the screens yeah. are available. Yeah. Well, I mean, this has been making a few different websites. I mean, uh, Gizmondo have picked it up. They should be covering everything this week. Hackaday have got an article about it as well. This is one you mentioned. It's based on the Arduino. Um, very small. Yeah, about the size of like a, a 10 pence coin. Um, there is also a commercial product that I believe has got a crowdfunder running at the moment called the, the Microbyte. Now, this is more of a built kind of handheld that plays NES Game Boy games. But again, it's got this one-inch screen on there. Um, 1.3 inches diagonally, apparently. runs at 240 by 240 pixels. Um, uses a Super Nintendo gamepad layout. But you look at how small this thing is. <laughs> it's like... It is literally about the size of, uh, you know, half your thumb, the screen on that thing. It's crazy. Do you think the Game Gear Micro started this whole kind of trend? Yeah, it's got to a tiny one. I mean, it even refers to the Game Boy Micro on the uh, on this page as well for it. It's, it's just, honestly, it's getting silly now. Like, I'm not saying don't get me one, like for Christmas, Dan. Like, <laughs> but they're just getting so tiny. Like, my eyes are terrible. Like, <laughs> well, At least if you collect them, you'll be able to fit it all on one shelf. Yeah, there is that. Just, yeah, true. <laughs> that true. is true. I've got 15 of them all on one small shelf. You make a good point there, though, because, you know, people who were fans of, like, you know, the original Game Boy, you know, we're not getting any younger. Y- your eyes do get worse <laughs> as you get older, generally. Yeah, so. why are you making it smaller? <laughs> yeah, why are you making it difficult for us? Um, but, I, you know, it is a cool idea. And I think, like you said then, that is going to be... It's either going to be collectors who just want them to mm. put on a shelf mm. for a bit of novelty, or if these things end up becoming available in, you know, game and GameStop and that kind of places, it is going to be like you said then, Joe. People are buying for Christmas presents, you know, to put in your stocking as a bit of novelty. But I can't imagine people sitting playing these. You things play at Christmas long. Day, and then you're like, oh, this is wicked, and then you find out they've got a USB, you know, out on them, so you can put it on your TV and you play it for an hour, and then you think to yourself, could just be playing. A normal console. Or, or you drop it in your pint. And then oh, yeah, there's that as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is a big downside um, to, to these products, I think. But, you know, interesting. Um, if anyone's bought one or anyone actually, you know, enjoys these, we'd love to hear from you. You can get us on social media any point during the week at Retro Hour UK on Twitter, Insta, our Facebook page, all linked up on our show notes at theretrohour.com. Uh, before we get into our chat all about Maxis and working on the Sim series with Justin McCormick in just a moment, let's give a big thank you to this episode's sponsor, our dear friends at Harry's. Now, of course, I mean, it feels like forever that we've been in lockdown here in the UK, but hopefully, you know, we're going to be looking forward to things starting to open up again in the summer, and that's going to be the case around the world. But even if you are spending a lot of time indoors at the moment, and for example, you, Joe, you spend a lot of time on like Zoom calls and that kind of thing during the day, you need to look, you need, you need to look the bit a bit smart. Got to look a bit smart. I, I look like a caveman half the time. But when Harry sponsors, I stop looking like a caveman because the thing is with me, I get really, really, really bad ingrown hair. So I tend to just grow my beard out because if I don't like shaving. But whenever Harry sponsors us and, you know, they send over the kits and stuff for us to use, it is amazing because I get so scared of shaving, especially doing a clean shave. But with the Harry products, I never get any ingrown hairs. I don't get the acne from it. It's just a nice piece of kit and it just helps with my skin massively. Joe even put his camera on today. I did. I, I did, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is Harry's. Um, 
they've got really interesting stories. Well, this is Jeff and Andy, who were two ordinary guys who were completely fed up with overpriced razors. And they decided to start their own company to fix shaving. And the company's called Harry's. And they knew the only way they could do that was by buying their own factory. And they take less profit and offer great quality products for a fair price. And like you said, Joe, I mean, they're amazing quality blades. Not only are they really good quality, but also half the price of the leading five-blade brand. And we want you to start shaving with Harry's today. Obviously, help out the podcast by claiming this incredible offer. Get your trial set for just £4.95, and that will be delivered to you, including a razor handle, a five-blade cartridge, foaming shave gel, and a travel blade cover for hopefully when you can go on holiday again this summer by nipping to this website right now, harrys.com slash retro. Support the podcast. Get your trial kit by going to harrys.com forward slash retro. Now, let's give a big thank you to our favourite people in the world, our incredible supporters on Patreon. Now, um, Patreon, obviously, we've had this running now for about a year, and we can't overstate the importance of Patreon to this show. Quite frankly, this show would not be going now if we didn't set up a Patreon this time last year. The the fans saved the show, to be perfectly honest. You know, we had all these big ideas of making a studio in town because of, obviously, we had a limited time working in the studio which is where Dan lives uh, Dan works um feels like I live there sometimes. it does feel like you live there sometimes <laughs> but you know we used to record at 10 at night you know I'd finish work at 8 and literally drive over to the studio and we'd be there till like midnight and we'd have to do the show like three shows back to back you know like in one evening sometimes wouldn't we just to get it in because that's you know and literally lockdown happened and we were just like what are we going to do we reached out to you guys for Patreon and literally, it saved the show. Like, we've been able to, you know, turn our spare bedrooms into home studios, which has been absolutely amazing with top quality equipment and stuff. And it's all thanks to our listeners. Yeah, honestly, we can't overstate just how grateful we are. Um, and we love doing the show each week. So thank you for allowing us to continue doing the show for you each week. And of course, I mean, there are always ongoing costs with doing something like this. We have hosting and so much to pay for. And we're actually doing a bit of marketing this week as well. You know, if you one of our new listeners has seen that, um, great to have you on board. But obviously, anything we get through Patreon goes back into the running of this podcast and allows us to do it week in, week out and bring you these incredible guests and the retro gaming news. And of course, there are a few perks on there as well. Well, you get our second podcast that we do just for patrons, the Retro Hour After Hours. Now, we're already planning our next episode of this, but if you want to hear the current one, um, it was a bit of a giggle, actually, where we actually chose games for each other to play and then kind of tried to guess each other's gaming taste, didn't we? Give them a little bit of a review. Yeah, it was really good fun. I I, I enjoyed the choices that you guys picked, and uh, I'm looking forward to doing the next one if we get the patrons to pick then can actually sit down and be like right i'm doing a i'm playing a game for work this is for work <laughs> yeah. yeah you can justify sitting there for six hours playing a video game then can't you the yeah. <laughs> so uh, if you'd like to join us uh, on our patrons hangout as well that we do once a month there was so much fun you sometimes get this podcast a bit early you get it ad free there are a load of perks on there but really you're doing it to support the show and keep it coming each week and of course you will get a mention we'll shout our eternal gratitude by giving you a big shout in the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Like this week, thank you very much, Ed James, Falco Loffler, Tej Panda, Mads Christiansen, and Martin Williams, who all made donations into the running of the show. We really appreciate that, guys. And if you'd like to do the same, you'll find the link on our website at theretrohour.com. Right then, let's get some stories. Inside Maxis, working with Will Wright, working on the Sim series. You're going to love this week's guest. Justin McCormick is next on the Retro Hour podcast. 
You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and I'm here with Justin McCormick. How are you doing, Justin? I'm doing terrific. Thank you very much. Well, we're very excited to have you joining us. And, you know, we always ask this question first, and that's what was your first gaming or computer experience that you can kind of remember? You know, certainly I was into the the first stand-up, you know, Nolan Bushnell machines like Pong and Computer Space and Tank. Um, But, you know, my, my... first computer game that I, I really was excited about was Moonlander on the Digital Equipment Corporation PDP-11. And that was a 16-bit, you know, kind of mini computer that had a vector graphic light pen display that you could use light pen for input. And they had, you know, crafted together this Moonlander game where you could take your 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 lunar excursion module and try to land on the moon and your goal was to land next to the only mcdonald's on the moon and your little <laughs> astronauts would you know climb out and you know order a shake and fries at the at the drive through and blast off but we quickly found out that the that the secret game was to see how fast you could crash your lunar module into the only mcdonald's on the moon and then you know, you'd get this, this, you idiot, you've destroyed the only McDonald's on the moon. What will we do? So um, that, that, that was my first exposure to something that really excited me. Uh, the PDP-11, of course, was, was barbaric. You had to uh, spend 15 minutes uh, toggling in a bootstrap program into the front panel to give it enough intelligence to be able to access its own hard drive. And of course, playing Lunar Lander, it would uh, overheat every 15 minutes and you'd have to reboot and go through that whole process again. But uh, it, it still really turned me on to, uh, to gaming. And that game I hear was really hard as well because you had like limited fuel. Um, so when you were landing, you know, you had to do it all really precisely. The, by the end of the uh, afternoon, the... The landscape was just covered with with crashed lunar modules. It was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> um, what was your first home computer system? I, you know, I started out with a uh, programmable calculators. That's kind of really where I learned kind of assembly language programming. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, my first real computer uh, was my friend Will Wright uh, got an Apple II, and we started. Uh, programming on that in basic you know my favorite game on that probably was sniper and flight simulator of course was a classic um i think the the hardest thing about the apple II was was just the how primitive the graphics were mm. and basic was was a real challenge to do anything in uh this was before we thought of <laughs> using assembly language on that well how how did you get to meet will then and like become friends we we grew up together we we uh, went to high school together and uh we were kind of in the the nerd club i guess you could say in those days and uh, just naturally gravitated to each other we were both heavily into cars um so we did uh some pro rally uh off-road racing and time speed distance rallies and things like that but uh we just really hit it off and Played a lot of uh, uh, strategy and tactics, uh, magazine board games, things like Panzer Blitz and uh, Battle of the Bulge and 
all those uh, hex-based uh, board game uh, type of things. So we were heavily into into uh, war game type of, of uh, simulation games at that time too. So you touched on programming there. What kind of like, how did you get into programming? What kind of gravitated you towards that? Was it just, you know, you enjoyed playing games, so you wanted to know how they worked? Yeah, my, I, you know... I, I, I think at first I thought of computers. Uh, mm. I had a electrical engineering kind of background and science background. Mm. I thought of them as, as just glorified calculators. And it wasn't until the graphics really started to uh, be available in, in home computers that I realized, wow, this is something a lot more interesting. My first computer that I, I personally owned was a, a Commodore 64 I immediately started, you know, poking in <laughs> instructions in basic mm-hmm. and creating sprites of the Starship Enterprise and uh, doing crude animations and things like that. And I almost immediately realized that basic was not my friend, um, that I needed to learn assembly language. So I got a 6502 manual and uh, just started started uh, learning learning the basics of assembly language programming. And I think the, that, that was kind of the aha moment for me that I said, this could be a career. This is something mm-hmm. that I'm having a, so much fun and it's so interesting and so deep uh, that I want to go to college and mm. uh, major in computer science at that point. The, 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 the C64 was, was amazing in terms of it was probably the last, really the 8-bit computers in general were the last set of computers where a single developer could create um everything you know could write a complete game music graphics everything um and you could hold comfortably in your head uh the entire instruction set all the opcodes all the timings all the registers without really going back to the manual after you you know got it down pat um so it was a, a very comfortable environment were you aware of like you mentioned simulation there? Were you aware of like industrial simulators or, or, or military ones, or had you, had you got involved with other other ones that were quite accurate? I, I certainly, you know, was aware of them and and watched a lot of things with uh, you know military, both both space simulators and flight simulators, and was in awe of what they were doing with that technology, but. Yeah, I realized, wow, that's, you know, $10 million back when $10 million meant something. So how did you start off with uh, Maxis? Was that like straight out of college? And, you know, what were they like at that stage? Yeah, so, um, you know, it was kind of an evolution. In, in 1984, Will, Will also got a, a C64 mm. and, and started working on a game that became Raid on Bungling Bay. So that was his first game title. He uh, managed to get that published by Broderbund which introduced him into kind of, uh, you know, the, the West Coast crowd. And that's where he met Jeff Braun, uh, which they would later go on to uh, start Maxis. And at that time, uh, it, you know, Will and I had actually previous to that started our own software company called Tax- Tactics Design in 1986 uh, based on the earliest kind of thoughts of uh, we had both gotten Amiga 1000s at that point and had started working on what would later become SimCity. We called it Micropolis at the time 
and later realized there was a hard drive manufacturer with the same name. So uh, decided we need to change that. But uh, regardless, you know, had a, a crude prototype, you know, started in 1986. One of the first things that Will managed to complete was a traffic uh, model. And, you know, I'm looking at and saying, well, that looks a lot like ants. Why don't we make an ant farm? And, <laughs> and we said, well, I, you know, okay, I think the sin, the city thing might, might sell better first, you know, so, but, but at any rate, I, I was still in college. Um, and I wanted to do serious programming. I did not want to mm. do games at that point, but Will went on to, uh, uh, form Maxis. Then in about 1991, I had gone the commercial route myself doing, uh, several kind of productivity applications and things with video digitizers and image processing and things like that. And it kind of run the, run the gamut. I had gotten kind of burned out on, <laughs> on commercial <laughs> software and, and started my own company to try to uh, market a medical uh, application of the frame grabber technology, which didn't go very far. Um, so mm. Uh, at that point, Will said, you know, would you like to come and uh, work with me with games? And this time I said, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so SimCity was originally aimed at the C64, right? And uh, that, that must have been before you joined, which was about 1989 that it came out? Yeah. Uh, you know, actually, most of the work was done on, on the Amiga, and they kind of backported it to the 64. Um, so I, I, I know, I know Wikipedia and everybody, you know, makes it sound like the C64 came first, but that's not my memory of it. Yeah. SimCity, you know, was their breakout title and, um, kind of launched them into, uh, you know, I remember boxing parties where we would, (laughs) everybody in the company would get together and assemble SimCity boxes. You know, that was kind of the, the fun thing to do on an afternoon. Uh, but we were, you know, quickly looking at what other titles can we do in the sim genre and which led to this this plethora of sim farm sim earth sim ant and sim life uh, we even had the new york stock exchange approach us at one point and said can't you make a, a sim stock market game for us and we explored that for uh, a month or so and the the sticking point for them was that um, they wanted to be, they wanted it to be realistic in terms of being able to trade recognizable stocks, but they didn't want any negative consequences. So no bad news about Exxon or something in in, in no uh, stock market crash. Yeah, yeah, you can't can't <laughs> simulate that. Sorry, you can't uh, lose. <laughs> <laughs> so that we eventually we we parted due to. Uh, I think creative differences. So uh, it was recently discovered that there was a version of SimCity on the Japanese NES uh, for educational purposes. Did you have any sort of hand in that? Did you know that existed or anything? Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah. Will, you know, became good friends with Nintendo. You know, the the thing with with NES games and Nintendo in general is the degree of playtesting and QA that they go through is just, I've never seen anything like that. They're probably do better QA than the military does before they, you know, send out a new fighter jet or something. Mm. Um, because they, they know they can't change a, a game console ROM once it's out in the wild. Mm. 
Mm. Um, and, and so they don't rush it. Um, and, uh, and, and so it was greatly delayed, but, you know, ultimately it, uh, was a, a really great, uh, port of the game. Was it hard to convince people to kind of play this game? You know, on paper, it seemed a bit like a, a business style game or an educational title. Um, how, how did they market it and get the message across to gamers? It, it was it was difficult, um, and I I think the challenge with with all the Sims was that it was a different style of gameplay. It was very laid back. It was very, you know, uh, uh, no consequences for screwing up. You could screw up on purpose and still have fun. Uh, so that open endedness was was a different style of play, but. What we found was that it had a broader appeal than just the traditional gaming market. We had a lot of, um, you know, for the first time, girls and young women and even older women that that were interested in in playing SimCity and just diddling around with, you know, making their their people happy. And you know, I I remember talking to uh, uh, some friends, uh, a married couple, and and. You know, they they would they would fight over who got to work on the city next, and you know, you don't dare touch my city while I'm making dinner. You know, that type of thing. So it was really broad appeal that uh, uh, kind of changed the the game scene in terms of, of really made that. You know, there there were some other simulation type games out there, but but SimCity really kind of brought it to the uh, forefront as a viable genre. And that kind of theme of um you know, balance and uh, kind of making a game fun. And, and it, it, I would say God game as well. Um, that, that came out of Maxis. And what were their other ideas to kind of increase the Sims franchise? Did did Will have any mad ideas himself of games that were going to come out? You know, not not so much. I think it, it at that point it became uh, just, just growth phase and, and try to... Uh, you know, it, it was a, a, a battlefield out there in the game industry. Uh, so a lot of it was, was just see how many titles you could get out on the market and see what stuck. You know, there was a, a lot of failures. You know, Sim Farm didn't do so great. Sim Earth didn't do all that hot. Um, there was a Sim Mars that kind of, <laughs> I don't know if anybody even remembers. Uh, I didn't know it was a Sim Mars. <laughs> <laughs> So just, a, a, you know, a whole bunch of these things where we would get developers. And, and then, of course, you know, we spent a lot of time porting them once you made the game. And it inevitably had to be ported eight different ways. So you had a lot of different developers working on it. But I, I think the thing that, that we caught on to with, with SimCity was this this vision of powers of 10, you know, where we're going out from from space and zooming in onto earth and zooming into a city. And then that led to, you know, the, the logical next step was the Sims to mm. go right down to the house level. The first version of, of the Sims I started working on in, in 1994 on, on the uh, Macintosh. And quite frankly, we just did not have the technology or the conceptual ability to, to make that a you know a realistic uh, process, we did a lot of uh, brainstorming, and uh, you know originally the 
the concept was was codenamed Dollhouse because that's kind of what it seemed like we were making. Mm. And uh, we did some focus groups and got just overwhelmingly lukewarm response to the idea. Nobody seemed to really like it in our focus groups as an idea. But we we still felt there was something something compelling there if we could get little avatars walking around and, and interacting. The real breakthrough, you know, finally, technology caught up for one thing. We had enough processor and graphics power to do, uh, you know, good, good uh, simulation at that type of granularity. Uh, but the big breakthrough was was the avatar intelligence and making a uh, their ability to interact with objects uh, open ended. So if you plop in a refrigerator, instead of programming the sim to um, okay move your arm and grab the door handle and open the door and get out the plate, instead the the refrigerator has all the intelligence the intelligence of the refrigerator is how to puppet the the sim into doing whatever is necessary to interact with that object and so that made it much more distributed and allowed us to do content creation kind of separate from the uh, development of the game mechanics itself and that really uh, allowed uh, third-party content creators and everybody else to to jump on the bandwagon and made it uh, the success that it is. So you uh, mentioned something there, which actually made me chuckle a couple of minutes ago. You know, we kind of went Sim Earth. You zoom in Sim City. You zoom in the Sims. What made you zoom in one more time to Sim Ant? Where did that come from? Well, like I say, that was kind of foreshadowed when when uh, yeah, you in, mentioned yeah in in the earlier days when Will was working on SimCity uh, originally and did the the traffic model. Uh, we always put that back in our mind, saying, "Yeah, that would be a lot of fun. Let's let's do a, <laughs> do do an ant farm." And um, uh, that that was that game was a joy to work on because it was such a clear, clean concept. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, Will and I just kind of team programmed it. Uh, he, you know, I was I would do the UI and music and the yellow ant, which was kind of the the control leader leader of your pack. Uh, Will was doing the the ferrome overlays and the programming for the spider, which mm-hmm. was the the nemesis of the game. And I remember, you know, one night I'm, I'm, I just had this wild idea, you know, I'm going to check in this, this code revision here where after the ants have killed the spider like four or five times, the spider gets revenge by growing laser beams that can shoot out its <laughs> eyes and kill all the other ants, you know, really fast. And, <laughs> and so I sprung that on Will one day and he just died laughing. That was, uh, but it was so, so fun. It was a uh, very intense development. Uh, you know, we, completed that in six months flat, uh, mm. working just, just flat out, you know, hundred hour weeks, but, um, never had so much fun programming a game before. That was just, just awesome. Was there I, uh, much study into like ant farms and stuff like, you know, what was the process there? Did you have to, or did you kind of know it from like <laughs> from being a kid or anything? It certainly, certainly, uh, you know, I, I had some, some biology and, and, interest in in insects from an early age and and had some basics but we actually went out and and talked to experts and 
one of the consultants kind of on the game was EO Wilson of uh, mm. the blind watchmaker fame, just talking about social insects. Uh, we did have one person who was really said, why are you doing ants? Ants are so stupid. Do sim B. Bees are cool, you know? And so we thought about that for a while and said, now nah, we're going to do ants. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, I remember one phase where Will was capturing wolf spiders and and studying how their legs moved for a couple of weeks, just trying to get the, the kinematics correct for uh, for the uh, the spider animation. So I'm trying to get him to um, shoot eye lasers as well. And you will, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you can't have freaking laser beams coming out of your eyes, what what good is it? Well. One thing that was really popular, and I just thought about it at the time, was uh, "Honey, I Shrunk the Kids," and and you know, they were they were really small and running around uh, with giant ants. Did that kind of help the sales? Yeah, maybe. And and then there was that uh, old black and white uh, B science fiction movie, "Them," you know, which was monstrous ants taking over the world. So that kind of gave us. Uh, idea that well the, the the goal of the game is to drive the the stupid humans out of their house i remember the big ants in it came from the desert as well exactly yes new nuclear fallout of course blame blame that so the sim ant manual is quite iconic um uh, and was greatly appreciated by the fans can you tell us more about that and how important it was yeah michael browner uh was uh our our documentation god and I agree. That is possibly the best and most instructional and educational manual I've ever seen for for any game and and maybe even for (laughs) non-game software. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just just a a real work of art. You know, the the whole team was was uh, the the graphic artists and we had Hailstorm helped us with uh, sound drivers and writing some of the some of the score. But Michael just knocked it out of the park with his his uh, his manual, and I I agree I I think that belongs in the Hall of Fame of manuals. Well, Sim Life was another great title, and uh, how did you get involved with the project? And like, what what were the initial aims of it? Yeah, that that was an interesting project. Um, after coming off of Sim Ant, we were approached by uh, a gentleman who worked for Apple uh, Apple at the time as a uh, ASIC designer. And he had been doing, he was a proponent of simulating chips and software before he actually went to, uh, to, <laughs> to chip fab. And um, so had gotten really into simulations, but he had this wild idea about, about oh, I want to do this genetic algorithm and approached Maxis with the idea. And they said, well, that's great, Ken, but you don't have any experience writing games. You know, we're going to pair you up with Justin here. And, um, so Ken, um, you know, had kind of a vision of what he wanted to do in terms of, of building the, the genetic algorithms and the food webs and the kind of how the, how the game would, would work, but didn't have really the understanding of how to make it game like and add the, the, the UI and the sounds and things like that to make it more engaging. But nonetheless, it, it was, um, I, I consider that kind of a breakthrough in terms of, of the first home version of, of something that, that shows how genetic algorithms work, uh, that you could actually uh, produce evolution on your computer. 
you were able to actually prove certain things that that you can see in real life in terms mm -hmm. of like well if you if you start out with a population that has two sexes um, they will eventually come to a 50 50 uh, balance of, of males to females there's there's an ecological pressure uh, genetic advantages to having that 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 balance and that was something that you could demonstrate in you know like an hour <laughs> on, yeah. on your on your computer it also had possibly the most complicated ui i've ever seen on any game there's you know one screen for the genetics where it was like a hundred different sliders you know and check boxes and things uh, so it was a bit overwhelming i think for most people i'm not sure it really uh was appreciated how cool what what but that thing was actually doing but it was a full ecological simulation plus a genetic simulation i was going to say sim sim life you know sometimes i think about it it could be a little bit ahead of its time and kind of seems like a little bit of a early precursor to games like sport do you think it influenced that kind of genre of games I, I think it did to some degree. Um, Spore was was kind of a, a long term vision um, that Will had mm. as sort of his magnum opus of of being being kind of the ultimate end point of the god you know mode of simulation games where you're creating a universe and uh, master of all all things all planets and life. You know, it went through many, many, many years of, of uh, kind of modular development where, you know, well, let's work on a gravitational model for accreting solar systems, you know, and, uh, you know, that, that eventually all these separate modules were kind of assembled together into, into what would become Spore. Um, edutainment and kind of digital encyclopedias were, were quite a trend at the time. Was this game meant to be like a huge crossover between entertainment you know serious gaming i i i don't know about how serious it was supposed to be or i think it was um just intended to be once again that powers of 10 kind of thing zooming out to the ultimate uh viewpoint and tying in a lots of different scientific and cosmological principles and evolutionary principles um so certainly a an educational uh component to it but um you know i i'd say simant kind of did more of you know having in-game uh education as well as a terrific manual and and really uh doing an accurate simulation of of social you know animal behavior and being a kind of simulation of uh, darwinian evolution um did you Worry that people like maybe religious groups uh, might oppose it. That wasn't really ever a an issue. Um, you know, I, I maybe it was just too early, or those people didn't play games and weren't even aware of the <laughs> that games like that existed. You know, I do remember getting one letter from a person who had played Sim Ant, who was so disturbed by one of the things in the game that he wasn't able to look at it, even though he liked the game, enjoyed the game. And, but, but he couldn't even bring himself to write what it was. And he, it, it, so my only guess was it was the caterpillar because he, it wasn't the spider. He was okay with the spider. 
and he was okay with the ants. So there wasn't much left, you know. <laughs> but um, it's pretty um, hardcore. A letter um, complaining about something that you can't even write about because you're so um, <laughs> so angry and upset. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I felt sorry for him because he 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 so genuinely loved the game, but at the same time was horrified by this one thing. And uh, but but he. Uh, you know, I appreciate his input. We did also receive uh, one of the funny things when, when uh, it, back then you had, you know, registration cards for your software and you would, you know, write in your name. And I don't know why you would register your game, but people did. And one day we got a card from Orson Scott Card, the author of Ender's Game. And we posted it up on the bulletin board. Look, it's Orson Scott's card. That's brilliant. So uh, what were Maxis's plans with SimCity 2000? Yeah, SimCity 2000 was, um, kind of, sales were kind of flagging, you know, and, and a lot of these spinoffs were not doing all that well on their own. Um, so SimCity 2000 was, was envisioned as a reboot of the genre, kind of, and to uh, really explore some of the concepts we had in more depth and just really up the game level a lot. Um, my contribution to SimCity 2000 was on the music. I did all of the arrangement and, you know, sound driver programming and things like that for um, creating all the, all the music on that game. At that point, you know, teams had grown considerably. So we had a, a huge cast of people working on SimCity 2000. But, and the uh, music was beautiful as well i'll just say like sim city 2000 was a point where everybody kind of had upgraded by then so they were able to play uh you know this new music and also uh use the new kind of graphic settings absolutely things had matured uh both in terms of composition and uh you know kind of influences from midi um so that you could uh really really do some some you know quite beautiful uh, music and and the sound quality had had improved drastically, so it it was quite enjoyable tweaking things. You know, I I would constantly go back and say, I need a better horn sample. This does not sound <laughs> right to me, and uh, things like that. But but uh, it worked out really well. The game was a step up in kind of every aspect. Um, which part of the game did you really enjoy? Uh, like the new features. I, I think the the thing that that struck me most about was more of the 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 city planning um, aspect, where you really felt more like a city planner or mayor, um, and and you were balancing so many things in terms of keeping people happy, and you know, do you fund the police? Do you fund the, you know the fire department? And what happens if you don't? So really, really. Uh, Exploring kind of that social contract, I thought was was interesting. You could easily make a dystopia without trying, you know, <laughs> very hard. <laughs> One of my favorite aspects of uh, SimCity 2000 and a lot of my friends is was the disasters. Who picked them, and was there much time wasted in the office playing around with them? Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, certainly, that was kind of a, a callback to the the horror movies and science fiction movies of the past, and. In fact, Tato sued us because they said having large oh, wow. dinosaur-like animals uh, that could, you know, wreck cities was a 
trademark and patent infringement or something on their intellectual property with Godzilla. And uh, so we had to make some changes um, to avoid that and pay them money, basically. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> it's a great feature as well, because, you know, you just get bored and you go, right, turn all the disasters on. Let's go. <laughs> exactly. SimCity 2000 has pretty much became the blueprint for city builders, uh, even to nowadays. Are you guys still blown away by the success of it? We, we were, and and what what really surprised us was that we, you know, ended up having a whole spinoff of Maxis that was Maxis Business Development, because we would have people from government. Uh, from, you know, real city planners come and say, hey, could you help us with like an ecological simulation? Could you help us with uh, solving, you know, these real problems in in our urban landscapes? And uh, so that was what kind of blew me away was that it had actual real world people saying, you know, this, this, we don't have tools like this in, 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 (laughs) in the real world. Can't, can't you help us out? was it a big task to improve like the AI inside the game and, you know, add features like the newspapers and the mayor's news and stuff? Uh, you know, I, I think at that point, um, I, I wouldn't say it was hard. It was more of, of divide and conquer. So mm-hmm. like the newspaper became just like a pet project for one developer getting the, the, you know, the spinning animation and the, the headline generator and, you know, things like that. Um, so it was a lot of little, little elements, little components that, that, you know, were all, all came together, um, to, to make it such a immersive experience. How do you feel about the legacy of SimCity? Because, you know, over this time now, finally kind of other players have entered the space. So, um, City Skylines seems to be a really good game. Are you keeping an eye on these, uh, city builders and still playing along? I, I haven't actually. Um, I, 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 you know, when I got out of gaming, uh, game programming, and and went back into more uh, corporate stuff, I didn't keep up with with like the competition of games. Really, what I got more interested in was was social media. At that point, I saw that as being the future. I'd been actually working as a a part-time guide on America Online, uh, later AOL, just to find out what were people doing online when all they had was chat. You know what what was so addictive about it? How, what games did people make up when they didn't have anything but words on a screen? So kind of a callback to the, you know, the text-based adventure games almost. But uh, that that was what fascinated me was was the the early days of of what would later become you know social media and you mentioned you were involved with the sims um what what was that like to work on and uh you know just the response to that game it it really kind of changed the world didn't it yes i i i think that everybody underestimated how cool that would be um the the early ideas actually weren't centered so much around the Sims, uh, the the avatars. It was actually our first concepts were more that it was about architecture. It was building, you know, cool houses. And 
you know, we had this really complicated model where you had to buy each nail and, you know, <laughs> pick, pick all these things. And, yeah, and, tape measure. <laughs> yeah, budget stuff. And, you know, and so we had all this, you know, really complicated terrain editing and, and uh, uh, you know, landscaping. And, and it, 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 it was so involved, just the, you know, how do you do a bay window here? You know, what about curved walls? And, and it just, just overwhelming number of, of, of things if we wanted to go that route. And, and we quickly realized though, that the star of the, the game was going to be the avatars, not the architecture. Although there are people who like the, 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 the building aspect of the game more than anything mm-hmm. else, I think. Yeah. That's my wife. She plays the Sims all the time and she just builds houses and doesn't actually play it, <laughs> but she plays it all the time. If that makes sense, <laughs> just building houses. So uh, how did Maxis change after the success of The Sims? I, I could see that the industry was changing, um, especially with uh, the rise of electronic arts. When I first started, electronic arts was was kind of everybody's uh, iconic breakout game company. They, they just did such a great job with things like pinball construction set and deluxe paint and things like that on the, on the Amiga. And they they held out this promise of, you know, games that are artwork, games that are are important, games that are respectable. A lot of us bought, you know, bought into that and drank that Kool-Aid and said, wow, that's that's where I want to be. Um, but, you know, as we got into the mid mid 90s, uh, things started to change in the game landscape and we started seeing much more corporate kind of uh, you know churn models where you know electronic arts kind of invented this idea of you have a 25 person team and you release in six months and it doesn't matter whether you know the game's finished or not you release in six months <laughs> and uh you know and and that kind of led to the like the the joe madden football type of you know scenario where every year you get another version of joe madden football you know and yeah that's that's cool it makes the bean counters happy because you have a predictable revenue stream but you know they're they're you're you're losing some of the soul i think of mm. of the the creative element there and it, it became a lot less fun as a game developer. You felt more like you're on a death march with a team of 25 people. Um, so the, the merger with Maxis and Electronic Arts or, you know, really Electronic Arts buying Maxis, that kind of I could see the writing on the wall that, you know, things were, were going much more down that corporate, you know, route. And I think Will felt the same way to some degree that, well, okay, it's, you know, time to do something a little bit different. Well, if you had the choice of picking like just a random sim game, what would you like to see? My personal one would be a sim cat where you go around the local area and follow the trails and fight for territory. <laughs> I love that idea. Uh, actually, I, I think Sim Raccoon might be uh, another title. Uh, I love you that. Know. Sim Raccoon. <laughs> 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 Um, but you know, I, honestly, the Sims online was, was, you know, really, um, that was the game I enjoyed the playing the most because it combined my interest that I had in social media in terms of, 
you know, real social interaction, uh, which allowed people to make up their own games within this virtual world um, and combined um, all the elements of SimCity and SimLife uh, and, and the Sims that, that we had loved. It's just now you had more people to share your experience with and bounce ideas off of. And uh, our final question is, what are you up to nowadays? Well, nowadays I am actually taking game theory and uh, uh, gamification to the healthcare market. Um, so trying to uh, encourage people to make healthy uh, behavioral changes and manage their chronic conditions by using kind of gamification uh, rewards and uh, advanced you know, data analytics and lots of tools to uh, use machine learning and things like that to predict what types of rewards are going to encourage people to, to make a, a positive change and doing you know, reinforcement and engagement strategies. So that, that's, that's been my focus for, for the last uh, many years now. It's good. We need more kind of focus on uh, gaming and mental health. And uh, I think a lot of people at the moment are using gaming as a kind of escape with what's going on in the world. So uh, great to hear that you're kind of involved in that area. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Justin. That was a really fantastic interview. Uh, we had a great time. I, I did too. Uh, uh, tremendous fun talking to you guys and uh, much success with your podcast. I really appreciate it.